This program, of course, is presented by Pro Wrestling Illustrated, the most widely read, widely sold, and respected wrestling magazine in the world today. This is Pro Wrestling Illustrated Podcast. I'm your host, PWI senior writer Al Castle, joined once again by my co-host, fellow senior writer Dan Murphy. How are you, Dan? I'm doing well. I'm uh, rested and back after a little vacation down in Florida and uh, ready to talk some wrestling. How much uh, of your vacation was spent working on the PWI 500? Not a second. Really? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that meant you had to get home and do it. Not entirely true, but that is, uh, my, my goal was, I was going down with uh, my girlfriend and her kids, and uh, we were down in the Tampa Clearwater area, and we had, every day, we had some activities lined up, and I brought my laptop, but I didn't want to be the guy who's like, hey, I need to work, and, you know, I wanted to kind of be present, but uh, the days where it was raining, we had a little bit of time, uh, early morning, you know, I was on the laptop banging out a couple of bios here and there, doing a little bit with the 500, but I didn't let it overwhelm anything. Except, and this is this is kind of interesting, I stayed in a condo um, in the office where I had to pick up the keys for the condo. It was like an Airbnb. Um, right across the street was Hogan's Speed Shop. I'm like, oh, well, I, you know, it's the Hulk Hogan's Speed Shop. I might as well check it out. It's right here. It's literally across the I've street. I've stayed right by there. But yeah, then, in the area. then right next to that, is a gym that's managed by Bushwhacker Luke. Oh, right. So I had to check it out, and sure enough, there's Bushwhacker Luke, and uh, I'm working on another uh, a wrestling book, a wrestling history book, and I asked if he had a few minutes to see if I could talk to him about it, and I ended up spending about an hour talking wrestling history with uh, Bushwhacker Luke. That's great. So even on vacation, I'm, I'm out there, you know, talking to a, a sheep herder and visiting <laughs> Hogan's shop, and, and wrestling was always pretty close. I, I've seen him in uh, recent years. He's got to be close to 70, right? And you know something in I, terrific he's, shape. He's, I believe, 72, wow. because I looked it up on, online afterwards. Uh, and he is in great shape. I mean, he's definitely uh, invested in the, the black hair dye a little bit, for <laughs> yeah. the, the hair and the beard. Uh, but uh, he, he looks great. He's working in the gym and, and working out and, uh, you know, super popular. People coming in, talking to him. He's, he's managing the thing, talking to me, posing for pictures and uh, really interesting time. Yeah, that's great. That's great. So where are you? I, I saw you post something. Are I know you've been back for a few days and, and threw yourself back into it. Are your PWI 500 commitments complete? Yes. Uh, I've written all of the bios for the 500. I still have to do with my, my column, my take. Mm-hmm. You know, we all of us, the, the senior writers, do our take on the, the year. Um, and then I'm, I'm done with the, the 500 issue and then turning my attention after a day or two to kind of, relax is uh looking ahead to the women's 100 yeah go right into it yeah same here i finished uh my bios early this week did my take still have to do uh the feature with our number one this year who i spoke with earlier uh this week so i just got to put together that feature yeah and i was i'm done i was uh i was offered that one myself but i was in the plane i, I yes, you know i, I, I wanted to, to interview had to pinch it but uh again i couldn't really kind of you know make the excuse like let's catch a later flight so i can get this yeah. phone interview with this guy so yeah. I, I had yeah. to defer yeah so uh well underway it's always a ton of work i mean it it, it really is and maybe and i know more for you than um for me i mean to explain the uh, division of labor somewhat 
I w- w- what uh, what do you do? How many uh, w- they they give us? Uh, they Stu Sachs uh, assigns us a certain number, so one person will be responsible for one to fifty. Next might be fifty to a hundred or one hundred and fifty. Uh, so I, I'm I'm sure you have more than anybody else, right? Yeah, I have more bios. I don't know in terms of word count, probably more, but. You know, obviously the top 10 are, are longer bios. Right. Um, you know, those are the bigger name people and everything. And what I normally do is I write bios uh, 250 to 500, oh uh, which are only about, yeah, it's only about 50 words a piece. So it, it, it doesn't seem like a lot, but, you know, you're writing that many short bios and you don't want them all to be repetitive. You don't want them all to sound formulaic. You want to make sure that they're up to date. And when you're doing 250 of them, you, it's so easy to just think, you know, I'm just going to bang it out and just, you know, good enough. Good enough is good. But you realize that a lot of these guys, especially in that range, getting in the 500 is such a big deal for them. Like so that bio them, means yeah. a lot. Mm-hmm. And I, it, it really kind of weighs on me sometimes. Or it's like, you know, something I really need, need to, instead of just banging this out and moving on to the next one, um, really familiarize myself with what this guy, his current angles, what he's doing, you know, if he's added a new finisher, if he's changed his look, and, and try to make it as accurate as possible. And that's the thing that takes up a lot of time. You know, it's not just the writing and the ranking that we do, but it's really trying to find a current photo, making sure that we have it all and, and you know, all of that, that, that all goes into it. But yeah. Uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's, so it's, it's a lot of work. I was talking to uh, a journalism class at a local university earlier this week, and we got into talking about uh, obituaries. And I talked to them about how um, when when I've written obituaries for for newspapers and the like, uh, they are the stories are probably read by fewer people than any anything I write, but the ones that I am uh, I probably spend the most time on and and am the most kind of uh, uh, careful and sort of painstaking with. Uh, kind of for the same, the same reason. The people who read them, for them, it means everything, right? So absolutely. Uh, if you if you forget somebody, if you you forget a a, a, a name in an obituary, I mean, yeah. it's, it's terrible. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I have the same yeah, experience. My, my nightmare is like uh, getting a correction in, in an obit. Oh, I, I would hate that. So uh, yeah, yeah, the other thing that's challenging about um, the that second half of the five hundred is that you are dealing with guys who some of the the background information is not going to be at the tip of your fingers right so oh if yeah i've got um for example if i'm doing a, a Dolph ziggler or or somebody like that obviously most anybody wwe you can um in your head be like all right he, he headlined this earlier this year he won this title he had this feud uh it's tougher if it's you know joe smith working for some regional uh, wrestling group to come up with with what he did it, it takes some research and the other thing with that is we do have the form on the website and we do encourage people to send in submissions and, and we take a look at those. But what I also try to do is just for my own due diligence, I don't take a submission at face value. Um, if somebody says that they won the Red Rocks River City Championship by beating this guy on this date, I try to find confirmation of that from a second source and, you know, just to make sure that we're accurate. Yeah. Um, and so... It's helpful when people send submissions, but I'm also trying to find it in other sites. And a lot of companies today, you know, the promotions, at one point with with wrestling websites, everybody had a roster page that had little bios and they had all of their results. What I find today 
is a lot of companies just have a Facebook page that has upcoming events, mm -hmm. but nothing that's got bio information, right. that's got title histories, that's got past results. And it, it gets really hard to find a lot of this stuff. And you know the guys, you can see their matches. You can look up their stuff on YouTube and say, yeah, that's a really good guy. But God only knows what the height is, weight, how long they've been working. That's where you really got to dig. Yeah. The, the other tricky thing that uh, we run into is the evaluation period uh, on both ends. Sometimes it's easy to forget stuff that happened very early in the evaluation period. I'll, I'll give you an example. I had to do Rusev's uh, profile and you know, nobody's thinking about Rusev much these days, but he actually had a world title match on a pay-per-view within the evaluation period that nobody remembers, which is uh, he wrestled AJ Styles at Extreme Rules 20, 2018, the very beginning of the evaluation period. So uh, that helps him some. And then on the flip side, uh, sometimes you there'll be somebody who's really like on fire right now. I'll, I'll give an example, like a, a John Moxley who... Uh, last I checked, I think it's five and zero in the the G one this year. I don't think any of the G one is in the tournament, so it's like, oh, you can write about all these big matches he's won, and and none of them are relevant to what we're we're writing. So that's a bit of a challenge. And the other thing with that is the two other aspects of that. And I know that we're, we've got a lot more to talk about than just the five hundred, and it's a little inside baseball. But maybe it's it's insightful that the people listening of what goes into this. We do the ranking based on their accomplishments over the previous 12 months. That's the uh, July 1st, 2018 to June 30th, 2019. But we can include some things that happened before or after just yes. for context. Mm -hmm. Because if somebody had a huge match or a huge result in July, Jacob Fatu, for one, uh, he's he won the MLW title, his biggest win of the year, happened outside of the grading period. And we can mention that he, he did win um, but he slotted where he slotted because the ratings finished before he won that championship. So that's right. something we yep. look at. Yep. The other thing that's yeah, yeah, champion now. Yeah. yeah, another thing that's always tough when doing the 250 to 500 guys because you, you mentioned a lot of the data's not out there. You'll find right now there are a lot of websites that have results. Um, and there's a few that are out there. And we can use them as a resource. They're, they're by no means always complete, especially at the independent level, although they're, they're really good. Uh, but when it comes to guys' finishers, guys will right. name their own finisher, you know, uh, the, the thriller killer, whatever. And it, it, no matter what site you go to, his finishing move is a thriller killer, thriller killer, whatever. So, well, what is the thriller killer? I, mm -hmm. I typically don't like to use a name unless I can describe what it is. Um, and, and that's sometimes, you know, you go on YouTube and you go into a hole trying to find this guy's top moves until you can explain what that finishing move is. So, again, those are the little things that, you know, writing a certain number of bios can end up, you know, taking hours and hours and hours of time. Yeah, yeah. So I, I have uh, one through 50. That's typically uh, what's on my plate. Uh, that includes the top 10. Those are, are longer than most of them. Those are each uh, 350 words each. Versus, I guess the rest of the, we used to have a little bit longer for the first hundred or so, but I think now after the, the top ten, everybody's about fifty. Um, so yeah, you, you start cranking them out a little faster after the top. The, the top ten takes a little longer because they're more of kind of narratives. Um, but yeah, I I found yeah, and I totally sympathize with everything you're saying about looking up guys finishers and and stuff like that. And the thing about the five hundred is on on one hand, um, by the end of it. You're kind of sick of wrestling, right? Because you're, you're oh my God, doing yeah. so much. But the other side of it, 
uh, is that it kind of um, reminds you why wrestling is so cool. It kind of makes you uh, um, fall in love with wrestling again, especially being exposed to guys that you don't normally watch week to week. I mean, the reality is uh, the majority of, of what I watch, and I think American wrestling fans watch these days, is WWE television. Uh, and being forced to, to dig in more to Japanese guys, and not just New, New Japan, but um, all Japan guys, th things like that, and, and watching some uh, Kento Miyahara. And it's like this time each year that I watch a little bit of Kento Miyahara, because uh, he, he always does pretty well um, the last few years, and you're like, man, this guy's so good. Uh, so that stuff is uh, a lot of fun, just digging into more international stuff and independent stuff. So uh, sort of a blessing and a curse each year working on the 500. So, but yeah, it's always come to the summer and there's always like those, those beautiful days and, and you're, uh, you know, hold up inside with the, the laptop. If, if the weather's good enough, maybe I'll take it out to my deck and do some work there. But uh, yeah, I can't even complain. I mean, 250, Jesus Christ, that's, that's intense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, that's coming to you soon. Um, well, first let me tell you a, a, a a bit about what we're going to be talking about uh, in a moment. Uh, we're going to talk a bit about uh, SummerSlam. It's coming up in just over a week uh, or so by the time you're listening to this. And uh, other current events. When we last talked, uh, word had just broken about Heyman and Bischoff coming over to WWE. And now we have uh, a few weeks since they came in. We'll talk a bit about our thoughts on how much, if at all, we've seen the product change since uh, both have come to their respective brands. Uh, and uh, later this episode, uh, from the pages of the current issue of Pro Wrestling Illustrated, which I'm holding in my hand and we'll talk more about in just a moment, we're going to feature some audio from my hot seat um, with one Kofi Kingston, the reigning WWE champion. Uh, pretty big get for us. We got to chat with him for, uh, again, the feature, the hot, our, our hot seat interview feature in the magazine. And uh, you're going to listen to some of it here, some portions that are not in the magazine. Uh, so some stuff that uh, you won't hear anywhere else. Uh, but if you, uh, the flip side is there are portions of the magazine that will not be in what you hear. So if you want to have the complete interview, go and pick up the latest issue of Pro Wrestling Illustrated. And if you want to do that, the thing to do is go to pwi-online.com. Uh, the current issue is, what is it? I always forget the, the month on the October 2019 issue. It features for the first time stars of All Elite Wrestling on the cover. Uh, Cody and Dustin Rhodes and other uh, faces from their big Double or Nothing show uh, in May. And this is also our uh, 40th anniversary uh, edition. And I uh, got a lot of great feedback from the last episode we we did, which, uh, with all due respect to you, Dan, <laughs> was the most fun I've, I've had putting together a podcast because I got to drive down to uh, to Philly, meet with uh, Bill Lapter and Craig Peters and and Stu and just hear these uh, these legends talking about uh, wrestling magazines over, over 40 years. So that was a ton of fun. And uh, for we extend the celebration of 40 years of PWI in the current issue with uh, a feature we put together about the uh, 40 wrestlers who shaped the PWI years. Uh, you'll want to check that out as well. And as far as the uh, the the AEW uh, feature, that that is why they're on the cover. It's our debate, Dan. You and I fighting, uh, as as we're known <laughs> to do sometimes, uh, about the the uh, prospects and uh, of success for AEW. Uh, a good nature debate back and forth, uh, and uh, we we take our sides on what we think will become of AEW. Uh, so a fun issue uh, as always. Go to pwi-online.com. You can buy the one issue. 
you can subscribe either to the uh, print or digital edition. If you subscribe to the digital edition, you get it a lot faster, weeks ahead of when you'll have it in your mailbox or you'll find it in your newsstand. It's also a little cheaper. Uh, but either way, uh, you, if you subscribe, you get a big discount over the cover, cover price. Half off, it's the way to go. Um, don't stress about finding the next issue at your local Barnes & Nobles. If you're lucky enough to have a Barnes & Nobles uh, by you, I know... You know, I, I, I travel to Penn Station in New York City a lot, and there are just fewer and fewer places, I feel like, by the week to find magazines. So, you know, don't don't stress yourself out. Have it delivered right to your mailbox. Um, it's the way to go. And again, uh, to do that, go to pwi-online.com. Uh, a couple other plugs. I, I would just remind it in an email that I got as a subscriber that we have an app. Uh, I forget that. But yes, download the Pro Wrestling Illustrated app. Uh, if you are a subscriber to the digital edition, and uh, it's really neat. You have, like, all your back issues right there. You can pull them up on your phone. You can just kind of go through your library of uh, digital PWI magazines uh, right there. Uh, also, uh, while you've got that computer open, go to ProWrestlingTees.com and buy your official Pro Wrestling Illustrated t-shirt. Uh, that shirt that uh, was so iconic from the 80s, the red shirt with the white lettering, the white logo, uh, you can have it for yourself. Also, a lot of other options, color styles. Uh, go to ProWrestlingTees.com and pick yours up. Uh, follow us on Twitter, at OfficialPWI, and send us an email at PWI at CapitalPublishing.com with all your uh, PWI questions and concerns. And you can also email the podcast uh, directly here at podcast. At Outlook.com. All right. You're, you're giving the people a lot of homework there. Now. I know. You, you yeah, got to buy your T-shirt. You got to subscribe. <laughs> you got to follow us on Twitter. Longer. You got to. Oh my gosh. But you know what? Just, One of the just things. Read the magazine and <laughs> enjoy and vote for vote for the uh, year in review, the achievement award, yeah. the whole thing. And we may be uh, we're a little premature on this, but but we got another big project coming in, which is looking back on the decade. So we're coming up at the end of a decade, and, and there's been some discussion about how we're going to mark that. So uh, stay tuned for some of that. And as you touched on, before long, you're going to be working on the uh, Women's 100. So uh, a busy time. Yeah, this is our, our busy season. And, yeah, I know the plugs get longer and longer. But when I got together with, with Stu and, and Craig and uh, Bill a few weeks ago, uh, one of the things that I found out was that from from Stu is that some of this stuff has has made a difference. So I'm happy to hear that and happy to do my part to grow our audience. So uh, please keep supporting PWI. All right, uh, I mentioned it. SummerSlam is on the way um, in just uh, a couple of weeks, which is in- incredible. And and I'll ask you a bit uh, your thoughts on the card. But my big takeaway is like I was just watching uh, earlier today some old YouTube stuff. Uh, from the early 90s, and I swear, literally, they started building SummerSlam uh, in the early 90s in April. So they, yeah. they'd start to, like, weeks after SummerSlam, I, I think back to uh, 1990, weeks after the Warrior won the belt from Hulk Hogan, it was still April, and they showed Rick Rude uh, in the gym working out. And and, and at the beach. They're right. The one and, uh, thing where he was doing, and I still think of that, this day, I don't know why, but like Rick Rude, uh, he, he had the long hair when he was Intercontinental Champion. He, he he became more serious, got the short haircut. They showed him working out at the jeep, uh, the the beach, doing wind sprints with Bobby yep. Heenan there, and then showing videos of him in the gym, and uh, ostensibly adding muscle mass so he could go up against the Ultimate Warrior. 
and that led to the match at SummerSlam. In August, and it, it, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, months it, it made later. me think, well, this guy's really taking it seriously. Like, and he looks amazing. Like, maybe he can do it. And you know, it was uh, uh, those long-term builds. I mean, that's what made SummerSlam so memorable. Twenty-eight years later, twenty-nine years later, uh, whereas SummerSlam is a couple weeks away, and right now I'm still having a hard time thinking of the card. I think so it, it's, most it's of very it's in, different these days. Yeah, I think most of it's in place, but I mean, most of the matches were only announced in the last uh, week or two, and I get that it's not the early '90s, and and um, you know the formula is completely different in terms of how much TV and hours of content they got to provide. Uh, but the the last pay per view, Extreme Rules was several weeks ago, and it does feel like they're dragged their feet a little bit in, in getting some of this stuff uh, uh, on the road. Uh, so that's that's one big takeaway. But the, the key matches at the moment, you got Brock Lesnar and uh, Seth Rollins. Now Seth uh, uh, once again chasing Brock for the title uh, that he won at Extreme Rules after cashing in the money in the bank. Uh, on the other side, you've got Kofi Kingston and Randy Orton uh, playing off of the storyline from uh, 11 years ago. I think you, you actually might hear Rand, uh, Kofi talk about that a little bit in an um, interview coming up uh, where he seemed primed for success back in 2008 and, and Randy kind of derailed that and uh, some other stuff. Now there's talk of, of uh, Goldberg and, and Dolph Ziggler and again, we're a week away and they haven't even uh, formally announced that so, so we'll see. Uh, Bray Wyatt makes his return with the new character, uh, The Fiend, taking on uh, Finn Balor. Trish Stratus is on the show. Uh, take it on Charlotte. Both women's titles are on the line, so I think a decent card. But but again, I'm I got to say I'm a, I'm a little underwhelmed. What's your take of uh, on the hype to uh, SummerSlam? Yeah, uh, <laughs> underwhelmed certainly, and, and I think it's just because um, the entire you, you talk about how the, the the hours of TV is different, the formula is different, and everything than it was in 1990. Uh, also. Uh, pay-per-views are no longer as important as they once were. I mean, now that everybody, almost everybody, I, I would surmise 80% or more of the people watching the pay-per-views are doing it through the network as opposed to ordering a standalone pay-per-view at 39.95 or 49.95, whatever the case may be. Um, that revenue is no longer as important. I think in the WWE's big scope of things, SummerSlam is an important show, um, but it's certainly not as important as the launch of SmackDown on the Fox network. It's not anywhere near as big as the shows in Saudi Arabia. It's just another show that they have to provide content for the network. And, you know, they don't really need to necessarily uh, get huge viewership. They just need to make sure that the people who have the network continue to keep it and more people eventually get it as well. So I, I think that and that shows. That shows because it doesn't seem like it's a blow-away blow away card. Uh, most of the matches we've seen before, uh, really. I mean, we've seen Brock and Seth uh, several times. Uh, you, you mentioned Randy Orton and Kofi Kingston. We saw that 11 years ago, for God's sakes. I mean, you know, it, it's there's different uh, turns and all of these and everything, but it doesn't feel like it's a uh huge super card of dream matches or anything along those lines it, it just seems kind of thrown together and uh not you know i mean it's not going to be awful there there's a lot of talent and some interesting matches but nothing special like uh, a pay-per-view used to be especially SummerSlam. yeah i i have less issue with the the actual matches because i i think they're all fine i think when 
you look at where the WWE's roster is at right now, uh, it's a, a, about as big uh, a show as you can put on. I mean, sh- and, and you do have to hold some stuff stuff back. It's not WrestleMania, so it's not where um, you know. But you it was the number two card. But you know, I think it used it, to be it, WrestleMania one, SummerSlam two. But I think, and it's, I, it's, I'm sorry, again. No, I was just saying it, it used to be. You know, in the number two behind WrestleMania, and now I don't think it would be in the top ten of, of WWE's cards of the year. No, I, I at think, least not with the current lineup. I I, I think that's overstating things, um, in in part because I, I I think that's giving too much credit for what they put on the rest of the year. I mean, we just came off of <laughs> um, you know some matches with Baron Corbin in in, in the main event, and I, I don't mean to dump on Baron Corbin, but uh, in terms of marquee value it, it's a significant increase the difference between having brock lesnar and seth rollins or seth rollins and, and baron corbin uh and i think the same could be said for for kofi and randy orton i mean i think these are two guys you know basically uh a-list or close to a-list guys so as a card i think it's fine again my bigger issue is uh how it was promoted or or not promoted for that matter and it just feels like I don't know. They drag their feet or what? And 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 uh, you know, if you hear some reports, some of these these matches have been uh, penciled down for a long time. So I I don't know why they they wait as long as they do to really get going on on the build with some of them. Um, you know, they 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 had the week with uh, the Raw reunion with with ninety eight different legends coming back, and the result of that is they basically took the week off from promoting. Uh, SummerSlam, and so they were another week behind in in, in promoting these matches. So uh, now this thing is a week away, and you know, as I touched on, some of the if, if it it is the case that Goldberg is going to be on the show, it's almost unthinkable that Goldberg is going to be on one of the biggest show uh, stars of the last twenty five years, uh, making a very rare uh, uh, appearance, and you're going to announce it less than a week before the show. I mean, that's that's crazy to me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, especially because, like you said, the Raw reunion show would have been a perfect opportunity to have him there and do an angle and whatever. Um, but the Raw reunion show is supposed to uh, draw in casual fans' interest and kind of spike the ratings and get people excited. That's the show that you should be setting the hook for SummerSlam. I mean, that shouldn't just be a throwaway standalone little show where it's all nostalgia. But you use those guys in key ways where you can build interest to the current product and, and you know, give the, the, the shine to, you know, give the rub to the, the current guys. It was the biggest audience I think they've had uh, of the year. And, yeah, and as a show, it was it was entertaining. It was fun seeing all the legends. I mean, I think it was a bit of overkill. But, uh, you know, putting aside whether there was a better way to do it, it was a, a fun watch. Uh, but yeah, that was one of my takeaways was like, wow, you, you guys had this big audience. Uh, I was waiting for that big angle and they never did it. And then they kind of did it a week later. We saw, you know, the uh, Brock's beatdown uh, of Seth, which I thought was pretty good on, on Raw. Uh, that's something that I would have I would have thought maybe you would have done at uh, the Raw reunion with, with the audience that they have. Um, so the, the other part of it, kind of bigger picture of, of where WWE is at right now, um, Bischoff and Heyman now have uh, theoretically been on the job for a few weeks now. Heyman longer than, than Bischoff, I think. Uh, it's only been the last couple of weeks that uh, Bischoff's officially been been working in the company. What What's your take? Have you noticed any significant 
change, improvement, um, worsening of the product, anything that would tell you that some, somebody new is in charge? No. I mean, there's little things that you might be able to point out, especially on the raw side, um, where it's like, okay, that looks like it has Paul Heyman's fingerprints on it. The, the Brock Lesnar beatdown, the, uh, uh, was it Braun Strowman and uh, was it Drew McIntyre uh, who went through Lash the, the, the stage? Oh, it was Lashley. That's right. I mean, little things like that. Okay, that seems a little bit different. Maybe that was Heyman. But, I mean, it's uh, – I've used the phrase a lot on this, but it's the best phrase that comes to mind. It, it, it's smoke and mirrors. Uh, they're all minor little changes. It, if Paul Heyman and, and, to a lesser degree, Eric Bischoff, are these visionary guys who were responsible for – taking their companies to such heights that we're still talking about them 20 years later. Um, and these guys have some type of creative control or, or creative input or something, uh, even though their exact uh, uh, duties are still kind of oddly ill-defined, um, you'd expect more. And other than a few little kind of bits of flourish here and there, there hasn't been much. I, I don't see much that they're doing, and it makes me think that, uh, they've just been brought on more to deal with the networks or to be kind of middlemen preparing uh, the, the TV product to move over to Fox than anything else. I haven't seen much creatively, and that was kind of my fear once they got hired, that uh, that they wouldn't have the opportunity to do the things that they could have otherwise done. Uh, yeah, I agree. I, I haven't seen much either. And, and as you said, I think it's been a little more noticeable on Raw, and that would make sense because I think Heyman has got more of a reputation on the creative side um, than than Bischoff does. Um, but what you would expect to, I think, it, it, the the flip side of that is, I, in some ways, I would have expected Bischoff's fingerprints to be more apparent because I thought what he would bring to the product is something having to do with the look of the show because that's I think that's really. Um, what he can bring to the table, right? When when he came to WCW, and um, really kind of uh, uh, overhauled the place. Remember, his first job was on the TV production side, not the creative side, and he created the look of Nitro, and not just Nitro. He's the one who uh, brought them into Disney Studios and really kind of um, overhauled the look of WCW television program. That before he got there was kind of dimly lit arenas. It was you know when when Watts was there and. Uh, not the best production value. So I thought maybe we'll see some of that. And granted, it's just weeks. So so maybe it, it takes some time. You know, I guess we could check back in a couple months. Uh, but I haven't seen anything to suggest anything is different. Um, certainly on SmackDown and, and on large part on, on Raw too. But for little things like, you know, Mike Kanellis getting a push and, and things like that and, and Cesaro being um, kind of heated up. That's stuff that you could definitely um, see uh, Heyman's uh, fingerprints on. Uh, the flip side of that is maybe it's not the worst thing in the world. You know, the, the really, I, I think the last thing I would have wanted to see was another just total reboot. I, I'm so tired of that, you know, where they kind of throw up their hands and acknowledge this place is a total mess. Let's just, you know, uh, scrap it and start over again. So I don't, I don't mind if the change is going to be uh, more gradual, but I would like to have seen, um, you know, the, the trajectory begin where, where uh, you see some, 
and maybe I ha maybe it is there, and, and I'm not giving another credit enough credit for it. They seem to have backed off a little bit about just the absurd uh, uh, issue with with not having wrestling during commercials and all these completely kind of like artificial forced ways to end a match or take a break before uh, a commercial uh, break. They seem to have backed off of that a little bit, which uh, if nothing else, that's a huge improvement. Now, let me, let me take the counterpoint on that one. Um, and, and I know what you mean about the, the, you don't want to do the complete reboot. And, and that's always the sign that a company said, a wrestling company saying the panic switch and we're rebooting everything. We're changing everything that never really ends well. But I've got to say, I, when WCW was really kind of starting to fall apart, I remember when they did those reboots. And for a few weeks, I watched. I watched Nitro and, and paid attention to it because you literally had no idea what was going to happen. And sometimes it was train wreck TV. And sometimes, but it was, it was interesting. And, and it kept my interest. And the WWE product has not kept my interest in years, in years. And I think that there's nothing to lose with trying on one of those brands, Raw or SmackDown, a reboot. Because if you did have, say, Eric Bischoff, but whatever figurehead authority figure you want to come in who kind of represents Eric Bischoff or Paul Heyman, hey, there's a new regime and we're changing everything. And you know what? We're doing this and doing this. Or it's not like Vince McMahon anymore. You know, all titles are vacated. What I mean, I wouldn't necessarily go that far, but something like that, we are making a big change. Try it. Go three, four weeks, see what happens. I mean, how much lower could the, the, the TV viewership really drop? But if it does, you can always reset it, have the McMahons come back out and say, well, that, that guy's been sacked and now we're going back to the way it used to be. And there's no damage done long term. But short term, it might make the TV product interesting again. I mean, it, it just hasn't been. It, everything seems so stale and formulaic and has been for so long that I would welcome a reboot like they did in WCW only because it made things interesting and unpredictable. I, I think the issue there is, um, and it didn't end up working in WCW, but I get where you're coming from, that it, it was exciting for a few weeks. But in that case, I think um, a, a reboot was more necessary because so much of the issue was the wrong people, as far as, as talent performers, um, were, were in the wrong positions, right? So it was just like, look, you've got... Uh, uh, Booker T and Chris Benoit and uh, you know these super talented guys buried underneath and you're headlining with Roddy Piper and Hulk Hogan and Kevin Nash so that's where a shakeup was needed I think by and large in WWE the people are in the right positions I mean on on Raw you've got Brock Lesnar and Seth Rollins uh, at, at the very top you know just underneath that you've got AJ Styles and Ricochet um, I think you look at those guys and it's like, yeah, that's, that's the right, those are the right guys. And over on SmackDown, Kofi Kingston, Randy Orton, Daniel Bryan, Roman Reigns. Uh, again, I, I don't, I don't think you look at those guys and say, um, you know, the, the, the wrong people or, or and, and more beyond that, I think by and large, with some exceptions, you don't look at their, uh, their mid card and kind of the, the undercard and say, this guy's being held back. This guy's being held back. There are some people, uh, but I think by and large people are where they're supposed to be the problem. And this is where in some ways Bischoff is more important than, than Heyman is 
uh, and agreeing with you that the product is so stale, I think it is more about these bad habits. Uh, and it's about production. It's about uh, scripting. It's about stuff like lighting and uh, camera work. Um, you know, I was watching... And, and not to, uh, uh, you know, have a debate again about AEW, but but just earlier today I was watching one of these uh, Road 2 shows. So now they have a, a Road to All Out, which are these these quick little six, seven-minute uh, videos that they put up on YouTube building to the next show. It's so different than anything that, that WWE does. It's such a completely different presentation. Um, so much more, it's not just sports-like, but but. I think there's more of a respect for. Here's a, a, an example of everything that is wrong with with WWE. I mean, if something ever encapsulated it, did you see the the angle with the whole scaffolding, all that stuff falling on top of Roman uh, on Monday? Yes, it's terrible. Yes. I mean, it's it, it it almost mind blowing that a place that is supposed to be kind of uh, being overhauled, new vision. Paul Heyman, who is a super smart guy, w would uh, allow something like that to happen. I mean, it, it was. It was the absolute worst of WWE, and then um, right after that, I was watching the uh, the All Out, uh, not the All Out show, the the Road to uh, All Out show, and and so much of it was just an interview with Cody Ro with uh, Tully Blanchard, um, talking about how he came to have this relationship with Sean Spears, how Sean called him, and he's the guy um, to to tell you uh, how you work against the roads. And then they have this whole contract signing, and and Tully insists we're going to have one guy, you know, uh, Sean's going to have one guy in his corner, Cody can only have one guy in his corner, and now the suspense, who is that guy going to be? Is it going to be uh, Arn Anderson? Is it going to be Magnum TA? Uh, but, but handled with such respect for fans and sophistication, um, I thought it was terrific. I mean, I mean, you talk about, like, black and white differences between the two. Yeah, well, it's it's because AEW is trying to take its uh, well, I, it, broad strokes on this it, is that AEW is treating wrestling with more respect and, and it is expecting that the fans have a certain knowledge base. WWE is playing towards casual viewers, kids, whatever, and it's like we just need to keep them hooked. Big things need to happen. Big guys got to fall down, and heavy stuff's got to fall on them. You know, it just. It, it, it's it's a, a lack of appreciation for the the fan base of WWE shows, uh, whereas AEW has the luxury of being able to kind of like they've cultivated this audience of smart fans through social media who are actively following them, whereas a lot of WWE fans kind of passively just consume whatever WWE gives them, and WWE has gotten used to that, so they just kind of feed them and feed them and provide content, provide content. Whereas AEW is doing things that's drawing more and more fans to them, uh, but on a much smaller scale. Uh, they're still far smaller than WWE at this point. Um, so whether or not that model can work, but it does make it more vibrant and interesting now than the kind of path that, that WWE is putting out. Yeah, and, and in some ways, the most exciting thing about AEW is the potential for it to improve WWE uh, the way WCW did. Uh, twenty something years ago, and you think about what Raw looked like before Nitro came on the air, and a lot of the bad habits that they had that they were were forced out of because of that pressure, and uh, you know, again seeing that that juxtaposition between 
just this week, AEW's presentation of a big storyline um, through their, their Road to uh, series and WWE's with that just horrendous Roman Reigns angle. Hopefully, you know, if, if nothing else, regardless of whether AEW is here in a year or two years, uh, maybe it, it forces uh, WWE's hand to kind of shake loose of, of some of these uh, bad habits. Uh, one thing I wanted to mention that I, I failed to, to bring up uh, before, and, and it's my bad, but but certainly having you on the phone, it, it's one of the, the biggest stories uh, of the year, if not uh, certainly the, uh, this week, uh, the passing of Harley Race, the former, yeah. uh, is it seven-time world champion or eight-time world champion? I guess it depends who's counting. That's exactly it. Yeah, I think that we technically recognize seven, but it's also been reported at eight. Uh, off the top of my head, I have to go back through. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Harley. It, uh, the, as you say, in, in both our cases, I I, th I think uh, his prime probably preceded uh, both of us uh, a bit. But but you're certainly very much the wrestling historian. What is Harley Race's legacy? He was uh, really the last of the. Um, Last of the tough guy world champions, I think. He was the last of the guys that was just looked, he, he had the, the dad strength. He, he you know, the, the tough guy who, who was, you know, but also a little bit in, um, a little bit unhinged. Uh, stories about Harley and, and the, 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 his antics and the things that he got up to are, are pretty legendary. Uh, but he could back it up. He was a, a tough guy. It just looked like a tough guy, looked like a tough guy sitting at, at a bar, but also a, a incredible wrestler with just you know uh, this presence and aura about him and this this feel of authenticity he didn't necessarily look like an athlete but he looked like a fighter and and that's something that i think wrestling has really lost and, and maybe it's a relic of a bygone era um but it worked so well uh during his time particularly in the 70s and the early 80s uh, by the time he got to WWF in the, the mid-80s or everything, he, he had kind of lost a lot of that. The, the King gimmick you know, didn't really help him, obviously, but it, it, it did allow him to make more money. Um, uh, well, I don't want to say more money, but a, a good steady paycheck in the WWF at a time when his in-ring talents and, and in-ring abilities were dropping off, and it gave him more longevity that way. Um, but in terms of what he was, he was really one of the consummate champions of the 70s, and he was a trusted and viable linchpin of the NWA during a, a very uh, difficult period of time. And, and he's also the guy who, who kind of made Ric Flair. I mean, it was, it was Flair beating Harley Race. It was Harley Race that really kind of elevated Flair into becoming the champion that, that Ric Flair ultimately became. Uh, had he not gotten that early credibility with those wins over Harley Race and that feud and Starcade 83, then I don't know if, if uh, Flair would ever gone off on the uh, the kind of upward angle that he eventually went on to to become the, what he did. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, growing up in the uh, 80s and you know, largely being here in, in New York and WWF ter territory, my first exposure to Harley Race was in the magazines, in, in the old Stanley Weston magazines. And, you know, growing up with Hulkamania and all that, I'd, I'd see pictures of this guy with the big mutton chops and the, the afro. And the, the big beer belly. Yeah, yeah like beer he, belly, the faded tattoo. Like, he was rustling in his underwear, and I didn't get it at all. I was like, really? This guy's your, your big champion? And so he finally comes over to 
the WWF, and they saddled him with some very cartoony gimmicks and stuff like that. Uh, but just recently, I um, I ordered a tape on eBay, which was one of the the costume video uh, releases that I really enjoyed as a kid, and I wanted to have. And it was uh, WWF's even more unusual matches. And one of the yep, matches yep. that's on that is uh, Harley Race versus Hulk Hogan in the Texas Death Match, uh, and I think it was Madison Square Garden. And it was that match that made me get it, you know. Uh, and and this was already an older version of Harley Race. He was probably in his early forties, maybe mid forties. Uh, mid forties, I'd say. He was past his prime, you know, significantly past his prime by that point, and he could still go. Oh, absolutely. And this was, you know, again, uh, mid eighties Hulk Hogan, who was, you know, not exactly all about work rate. And uh, he just had a barn burner with with Hogan, and some of it was the 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 whole presentation before the match. Uh, this is so great. Howard Finkel tells um, he asks everybody in the front row to move out of their seats because this is going to get really serious. So you should go take a seat somewhere else, um, or if you stay, you know, stay at at your own caution, which is such a great little touch. And it's like, oh my god, what's going to happen? Uh, and it was just you know a no DQ fight with just brawling. But uh, Race just bumped like a champ. Uh, it was fantastic. He made Hogan look like a million bucks, and uh, that's what made me get it. And again, I and I never really got to see other than in in the old uh, videos and certainly in the network some of uh, uh, Race in his prime. But but that was the first time that in kind of real time I got a, a taste of uh, what made him so great. So uh, and, and that's what was great is that when he did want to make somebody, uh, he would bump for him, like you said, and just make them look like a million bucks, which is what he did with Flair. If he didn't, you know, and he was the kind of guy who, who had such such sway and influence in the industry, if he didn't want to make somebody look good, he's going to kill him. You know, I mean, he's not necessarily yeah. taking the liberties of him in the ring or doing anything like that, but he's going to do the match and just, you know, you're really going to have to work for it. But if Harley really wanted to make you look good, he, he could do it like, no, you know, right up there with, with Ray Stevens and Nick Bockwinkle and a few of the other classic wrestlers. He was just so good at uh, getting the most out of his opponent when he wanted to, uh, to do so. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember as a kid, um, the, the notion of holding world titles seven times was mind blowing to me, you know? Uh, and I remember when, when Flair finally caught up, I think it was uh, with um, when he beat Sting for the, uh, I guess it was still the NWA title at the time, at, at a house show in the Meadowlands early in 1991, right after the whole uh, Black Scorpion fiasco. I think that was the record-tying um, uh, reign, and it was like, wow, you know, he caught up with Harley Race, and, you know, now you've got, yeah, Flair obviously went on to have 16 or whatever you count. I mean, I think some people are in the 20s and Cena's got 16 and, you know, Orton's got a bunch. So uh, it's not what it used to be. But certainly in in the 80s uh, to have gotten up to seven. And, and you're talking the NWA world title and there was all the politics that went into how that belt was awarded. So it really oh, yeah. spoke volumes about uh, the, the consummate professional that, that Harley Race was. So uh, absolutely, rest in peace. Uh, a huge, huge loss for the... Uh, wrestling industry uh, all right dan thanks so much we've been going about 45 minutes here uh i appreciate you taking the time let's not wait too long to do this again maybe uh after SummerSlam, we'll get back together and and share our thoughts on the show sounds like a plan let's do it okay for now let's listen to my interview with the reigning wwe champion kofi kingston 
I, I got to ask. I wasn't going to, but I just thought of it. What was like wrestling and what was it like 104 degree uh, temperature uh, on Friday? Yeah, it was hot, man. And and so it was hot during the day. And then the sun went down. And it was like, okay, it's not like it doesn't feel as hot, but it was still like, you know, a good like 89, 90 degrees. And then you go inside for a long time and you get used to the air conditioning. And then it's like almost time for the match. So I go to uh, leave and go up through Gorilla because that was all outside. And it is blazing, instantly sweating. Uh, so uh, I had to like, normally I go out there with a bunch of baby oil on. I was like, nope, not doing that because it's going to be incredibly like just entirely too dangerous. Just start frying. So like, oh, yeah, you know, you just don't need it either. You know, we're going to have a good glisten out there with the sweat anyway. So uh, I wiped it all off. Uh, but for me, like I, I would much rather be hot and cold, so really? especially, you know, like, coming from Ghana, like, the week before, not even a couple of days before, I thought that I'd be ready for it, but it was, like, way more hot and humid in Saudi than it was in Ghana, so, um, yeah, it was hot, but at the same time, uh, like, like, going in there with a guy like Ziggler, I know that it's going to be fine, you know what I'm saying, so, you yeah. know, I, I'm not really one to get tired, I, I, you know, I had a couple of gauntlet matches <laughs> in, like, three weeks, so uh, ever since then, I've been in pretty good ring shape. So um, it wasn't anything. I, I like being – I'd rather be hot than be cold. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, Ghana was the other big trip. And uh, I love the video that they put together uh, uh, on – I don't know if it was Raw or SmackDown. I hope there's more. <laughs> is, is there anything more that you guys are going to air? Because it was only, like, a couple minutes, and it's the kind of thing that um, it'd be great to see more of. So, so it was a oh, more yeah. Yeah, we, we actually have a, an episode of 24 coming out that's going to document my old WrestleMania journey and then particularly going to Ghana, uh, you know, being there for four days <clears throat> was awesome. And um, it just kind of worked out. You know, I haven't had a, t- a chance to go back in 26 years. My mom has been wanting me to go back for a long time. I'm like, Ma, I, I, I miss a lot of things. I miss weddings. I miss birthdays. I miss trick-or-treating. <clears throat> Even, like, some funerals and things like that. I missed so much, so I definitely didn't have time to take time off to go on vacation. My wife and I haven't been on a vacation since our honeymoon in 2010. So, uh, needless to say, uh, a trip to Ghana wasn't in the cards until uh, we started taping this 24. And I was like, you know what, guys, it might be cool, especially after having won the WWE Championship, to go back to Ghana and, uh, you know, for number one personal reason, I haven't been back for so long. I want to go see my family, but then also just to, you know, give people a sense of hope that anything can happen, you know. Um, and they were all about it. So, you know, they, they got the camera crew and everything ready. We got everything ready in, like, less than a month to go down with the visas and everything and all that. And, uh, and we made it happen. I just so happened to have a, week, a weekend off, which is completely rare. But uh, it, it, everything happens for a reason. I feel like uh, everything especially in the past few months, has been very serendipitous, you know, um, winning the WWE Championship after 11 years, uh, also coinciding with the year that the president of Ghana came this year, the year of return, to where members of Ghanaian diaspora, he invites them to come back and be reacclimated with the country, so it's this big whole homecoming thing with the world, so the fact that, like, all of this coincided at the exact same time, even, like, you know, going against Daniel Bryan at WrestleMania, a guy who was in the same position that I was in, you know, two years earlier being demanded by the people to, to main event and, uh, and to be up for the, for the championship. 
and the fact that I went up against him and now he's saying all the things to me that people were saying to him, all those dastardly things. So it's just like everything happens for a reason, and um, it's just been a, like I said, very serendipitous few months, per se, and, uh, and yeah. it all worked out. It's been great. Yeah. So you were, what, 10 or 11 last time you, you were in Ghana? Did, did you? Uh, yeah, I, I was uh, in fourth grade or going into fourth grade, so uh, I don't know how old I was, but yeah, early, yeah, probably just hit the double digits, you know what I'm saying? Uh, yeah, I do so, Yeah, man, I do, I, I do remember that, so so actually, so I was born there, uh, and I left when I was a year old, and then finally came back in 1993, and one of the things that, like, I it really stuck out with me was the fact that, you know, I was very appreciative of what I had, because I went back to Ghana, and I saw people with so... Uh, they had so much less than I did, but at the same time, they were so happy and so welcoming and enjoying and enjoying life. And at that point, as a kid, I realized that, like, hey, you don't need a whole lot to be happy. And I feel like that was a very valuable lesson that I learned at a young age. And it really, you know, I've been able to keep that with me throughout my entire life. Um, so, yeah, and I, I definitely do remember a lot of the, you know, just the memories that we had going to Elmina Castle back in the day, even meeting a lot of my family. Like, I have such a huge family. I got to meet my grandparents for the first time in, in 93. Oh. You know, um, I got to meet all my aunts and uncles and cousins. Because back then, we didn't have any social media, right? So mm-hmm. now uh, I can keep in touch with everyone through social media and Facebook and all that. But back in the day, I didn't have that. So it's awesome to be able to meet everybody for the first time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, have you thought about maybe uh, trying to get some some people's ear about maybe running uh, some shows down there? I think it would be amazing. Uh, I, I don't know any of the logistics behind any of that, but um, it would it would be awesome because it's like people know the product there, and somebody at the airport was actually showing me that they had the WWE Network on their phone. So I was like, my gosh, like you forget how big of a reach that we have. Like we go out there, we perform in the ring, and you know that the camera is taking what we do and dispersing it throughout the world, but you really don't have a, a, a good idea of who it's reaching until you go to Ghana. You know what I'm saying? And you see yeah. that, you know, people are, are in the streets and they're just, you know, we couldn't go anywhere without security because everybody was just wanting to get like a, a touch or a, a, a get an eye on, on me. And it was just uh, an incredible feeling, man. Just to be able to have that kind of an impact on a group of people was just so powerful and, uh, and and humbling, you know, but then also it lets me, you know, just reminds us all how big of a reach WWE has and how big of an influence that we are in this world. Yeah, yeah. There's, I remember interviewing Mark Henry years ago, and uh, I asked him if it was important to him um, to become one of the great black superstars in WWE history, and, and maybe I didn't ask it very artfully, but I remember him saying, uh, no, I just want to be one of the great superstars in WWE history, regardless of color. Um, do you see it that way, or, or given your position now, do you feel like an extra sense of social responsibility to represent African-American wrestlers, uh, especially since, since the group of, of African-American wrestlers made it to where you've made it are relatively few, so you're in kind of a real small company, right? Yeah, definitely. Uh, so it, it's, a, it's definitely a big responsibility that I take a lot of pride in representing, uh, number one, because it, it's, it's a big difference to say that anything is possible versus seeing it, you know, uh, theory versus actuality. 
And um, that in and of itself provides so much hope. For again, and I've said it over over the past uh, you know few months, for people who look like myself uh, as kids to be able to see somebody who looks like you doing incredible things provides a whole different sense of motivation for that child. So it's very important for me to represent and uh, and provide that motivation. It's something that I take a lot of pride in uh, in doing. But at the same time, it goes beyond race because my story is not just you know um, the African American guy who made it. It's the guy who struggled and who fought hard for 11 hard years after, you know, uh, you know, being, uh, you know, given certain roles or playing a certain role on TV and uh, not necessarily having the best storylines or, you know, getting the quote-unquote push, but somehow, some way, uh, here I am as WWE champion. Even when you think about a WWE superstar in general, like, you don't think about me. You don't think about somebody who, you know, barely over six feet, you know, with skinny legs and no pectoral muscles, you know what I'm saying? You don't picture me. I'm not your stereotypical WWE superstar, but somehow, some way, here I am as the WWE champion holding the most prestigious title in this industry. And I think that's a testament to, you know, just working hard and believing in myself. And uh, I want everybody out there in the world to know, regardless of your skin color, regardless of where you come from, or regardless of your background, anything is possible if you believe in yourself. You know, uh, even if people are doubting you and telling you that you can't do it, because I definitely had a lot of that along the way, but again, here I am. So I want to serve as like living, breathing, tangible proof that anything is possible if you push yourselves, and that kind of transcends race. You talk about, you know, chasing that dream. Was that still your dream as of earlier this year, late last year? Because obviously there was nothing that could have forecast where you would be right now. And and you were in in a good – as part of a real high-profile tag team, very visible. I'm sure you guys were selling a ton of merch. So so – it's it's not that you were in a bad spot, right? But but there was nothing that that suggested that you would be in the the singles main event mix, much less WWE champion. Was that still on your mind, or had you um, come to kind of accept and be comfortable with with the spot that you had? Well, I think the key in in uh, becoming a successful WWE superstar is not being comfortable, and myself, Woods, and he pride ourselves on never, like, coasting on our laurels, and, you know, it's very easy, it could be very easy for us to just say, hey, you know what, hey, we made it, we're doing all right, you know, let's just keep doing what we're doing. We're always thinking about different ways to innovate, you know, whether it be in a promo or dropping a relevant piece of pop culture into what we're talking about, or, you know, trying to get a uh, different food product over, you know, uh, we, we don't like, we just don't, it's not in us to coast. So in terms of the goals, like, this has always been the goal of ours is to have one of us, you know, be uh, uh, a champion in the highest level. So um, we never really consider ourselves to be a tag team. We consider ourselves to be more of a faction to where, you know, one of us can be off doing a storyline in a singles picture, and then somebody else can be doing something in the tag team picture, or all three of us can be having different singles titles. So that's always been the goal, and we just it's just a matter of, like, getting there. And with WWE, like, as you all know, it's, like, it's impossible to predict um, anything, really. So you can't really even have a game plan, whereas, like, a normal job, you can be like, okay, well, in two years I want to be here, and I'm going to take these classes, and I'm going to 
you know, learn how to do this, and then it's going to automatically propel me to this situation. Like, for us, you can do all that work, and none of the results can happen. Or you can do none of the work and have some of the results happen, like, organically. So you just never know. So for us, it's more important to be, like, just prepared for anything. You know, keeping the blade sharp is the term I always use. And lo and behold, that's exactly what happened. I just happened to be thrust into the role of, uh, you know, being in the elimination chamber uh, when Ali got hurt. And, um, you know, I I was able to uh, kind of excel in that role because I was ready. And I'm a guy who doesn't really do a whole lot of cardio, but, you know, I was tasked with the, uh, you know, I was faced with the task of being put into a gauntlet match. And I was told, like, hey, you're going to be in the ring for over an hour. You think you can handle that? And I'm like, of course, yeah, I'll handle it. You know what I'm saying? And, and like, back in the day, I had um, Dr. Tom as a teacher and one of my coaches at SBW, and he put us through the, uh, you know, the grueling hell that is uh, an hour Broadway match. And when we had this match at SBW, like, it was when it was way back before any kind of, like, you know, TV studios or we only had, uh, what, I think two rings or three rings in the middle of uh, a warehouse full of, like, canned goods, like canned soda, you know, canned beans. Like, we had an endless supply of, like, soda and beans to take home. Uh, you know, and, and uh, there was no AC. There was no, like, flowing air. It was so hot. And having to do that, like, even though it was over a decade ago, it still mentally prepared me for what happened after Elimination Chamber and being in those gauntlet matches because I mentally already knew that I could do it because I'd done it before, you know? So, yeah. again, like, you talk about serendipity. Like, Dr. Tom always said, like, hey, you know, you just need to be able to know if you can do this. It's a mental thing. And I was like, oh, yeah, sure. And then, you know, of course, I got through it back then. But who would have thought that in 10 years it would be relevant in that exact situation yeah. where I not only had to do it not once but twice, you know? Uh, and, and just mentally, like, I already knew that uh, I was going to be able to do it. Even that day, like, a lot of people came up to me and were like, oh, you got a big day. How do you, you got a big cardio day. You, uh, an hour, bro, what are you going to do? And everyone was, like, really worried. For me, I was, like, really calm and just kind of thinking about how I could tell that story as best as I could. So the fatigue never had any kind of, like, um, it didn't intimidate me. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't worried about it. So, yeah, um, yeah. so a long-winded answer to your, your question, but, like, it's uh, it's always important just to stay ready. You know, when when you stay ready, you don't have to get ready. So right, right. Know. I know. I know you said that that you don't. It's impossible to plan ahead that much in WWE. But but once you got that much information, Ali is out. You're in. Could you already start thinking two and three steps ahead? If if I do real good here, then maybe some people take notice. Maybe some plans change. Maybe uh, you know, it, is it possible to me to get kind of slotted in there for WrestleMania? Uh, could, could you think that far ahead already? Yeah, I mean, in a sense, uh, but I, I was really more of a one-match-at-a-time type scenario. You know, I, I took it like one match at a time because I've been around for too long to to know that anything can happen and anything can change. Uh, even though you're told that you're doing something one day, the very next day you'll be doing the exact opposite. And it's happened time and time again. So I almost like didn't allow myself to believe that it was going to result in a WrestleMania match because, I mean, call it being, like, jaded or experienced, I don't know. I've just, again, had too much experience to to put all my eggs in the basket and say, oh, my God, this is going to be awesome. It's going to be a WrestleMania match and get my hopes up and then be let down. 
Um, the goal, like I said, man, is always to go out there and give it my best every single time, to steal the show every single time. So um, doing that was the kind of one-step-at-a-time mentality that I took. Um, and obviously knowing that it could wind up in a WrestleMania match, but then knowing that it, it very well could wind up in nothing. So, um, yeah, I just kind of go out there every time and just do it as well as I can with every uh, every opportunity that I'm given. Yeah, you talk about being a little jaded. I, being there in, in 2008 in Madison Square Garden, where you had that uh, that angle with with Randy Orton, where you jumped off of the uh, the risers there onto him, and everybody thought. And I know you've heard this a million times right now. This, you know, this was the night that Kofi Kingston became a star. He's going to be the next big main eventer, and and not really anything came from it. Did, did that affect kind of your your outlook, either in, in being more jaded or or maybe telling yourself, I'm not going to let that opportunity slip through my fingers again. You know what? What I realized about that, it wasn't that um, – I don't think it made me jaded. It just made me aware of the way that things are around here. Like, nothing is guaranteed. Like, you can talk about people deserving this or deserving that. Like, normal logic does not apply to uh, when it comes to booking. And, and you have to, like, really understand that, um, you know, uh, whereas, like, in a normal job, you work as hard as you can, and you get rewarded and climb the ladder. That's not always the case. You have people who work very, very hard and, not, and are not necessarily given the due that they deserve. So um, I think for me, with that whole situation, it was really eye-opening because I was on one path, and then all of a sudden, like, it was a different trajectory. Uh, and then I think it was also that year, maybe the year after, where, like, we had the uh, 25th anniversary of WrestleMania. It was uh, – I was in the money in the bank. Um, and there was a lot of excitement. I was able to do some, like, awesome things, innovative things, which is hard to say when you have guys like Edge and Christian and the Dudleys and the Hardys stealing the show and, and setting the bar for ladder matches, but I was still able to do some unique things that had never been seen. Um, and then after that match, I had uh, came through Gorilla to a standing ovation. Everyone, you know, talking about how amazing it was. It was awesome that night. I felt really good. And the very next day, I wasn't booked on Raw. So that was like, again, eye-opening, like, not that your performances don't matter, but they don't necessarily dictate, like, how well you're going to do. And the only thing that I have control over is how well that I do. You know, as far as all the other stuff, I have, I have zero control, pretty much no control. So, um, yeah, I think that, you know, it, it's been a lot of stops and starts. And, and for me, it's really just been – a matter of keeping a positive attitude that, and knowing that anything can change, you know, at any given time, um, because it's very easy to be like jaded to the point where you don't want to work. You know, you, you, you don't want to show up. You're not having fun. Um, I never let any of like the way that I'm, that I'm booked, uh, like stop me from having fun and, and, and going out and enjoying myself because I've been, in a position where I didn't have this job to where I was uh, at an everyday nine to five in a cubicle and it works for some people. But for me, that was miserable. So it's like a bad day at WWE is better than a good day on, you know, in, in the corporate work setting. So um, it's just a matter of mindset, man. It's just uh, being positive. Like the power of positivity is mm -hmm. something that like I practice in real life. It's not just a gimmick. You know what I'm saying? Like, um, uh, so yeah, man, it's um, yeah, yeah. It, it's yeah. You just you just got you just got to keep on rolling.
It's I'm kind of like the, the, the new day sort of like catchphrase. Uh, but how much of that outlook and that positive outlook came from being involved in the new day and surrounded by, by those two guys and feeding off of each other? I mean, do, do you think that actually, you know, gimmick or not, that actually helped shape your, your viewpoint about what you do um, and brought you to this point? Yeah, I think that being with the new day is what brought it to fruition and uh, brought it to, like, uh, an actual, like, realization. But as far as, like, being positive, like, I- I've been that way my entire life. Um, but uh, obviously being with Woods and E, it's, it was on a whole nother level because all of us have, like, that same mentality. So to be grouped with people, or, you know, to be uh, put in the same place as people, like, by faith, uh, that have the same mentality as you, that uh, have the same, like, beliefs, and we listen to the same music, and we enjoy the same things. We all like playing video games. We all, you know what I mean? We we have, uh, we, we like sports, you know? So um, to, to be, like, put into a position where you're amongst guys who, like, you jive with, it, it's, it's really, again, like serendipity. I could have very well, like, not been with the company at this point, but by the, when I had met Woods and E, I'd already been with the company for a good, like, five years or something like that, six years, you know? Um, but, like, fate just allowed our paths to cross, and uh, I, I'm just so grateful that it did because uh, more importantly than all, like, the success that we've had as a group and the uh, historical things that we've been able to do, you know, tag team title reigns and, Pudio cereal and pancakes. What, what's more important than all of that is that I've met two of my best friends, two guys that I consider to be my brothers. And the longer that we're together, like the more I realize how rare it is to have that kind of a friendship, especially in this industry, and to be teamed with guys who you jive with so well. Because I look at some other tag teams and I see like one person's always trying to like be the single star, or people are just getting thrown together and they don't really like each other or they don't travel together. Like, me, Woods, and E, like, we're, we're thick as thieves. We're always together, always. Even when we go home, we're constantly, like, texting each other. So uh, I'm just really uh, fortunate to have met two, two, two such incredible guys, you know, that I really consider to be my brothers. Um, and it, it has been a real feel-good story, obviously climaxing at, at, at WrestleMania. And that, that visual of you celebrating with your kids, I mean, it was just beautiful. I mean, it was, it was one of those moments that had, that had tears in people's eyes, and, and, and you don't get – that many of them. So uh, on top of, you know, your 11-year journey and, and just the, the success of, of, of reaching the top of that mountain, I imagine it had to be, feel especially good that, you know, you can't find a person to say a bad thing about you, right? I mean, um, everybody <laughs> was, was rooting for you and is still rooting for you. And, and as crazy as, as it seems, the, the, the baby face who – fans actually all kind of universally love is kind of a rare thing uh, these days, but um, I, I, you do feel like you've got the support of, of everybody behind you. What, what do you attribute that to? I mean, it, it's got to feel real good that, again, on top of your personal success, you, you've got the support of everybody around you. Yeah, it's really, it's really humbling, you know, um, I, and I didn't realize, like, how much support I had until the Elimination Chamber where it came down to me and, and Brian and everybody was just going nuts. And then I went to Twitter 
and I couldn't even get to the bottom of my timeline because of all the love I was getting. And I was like, oh, my God. Like, even, like, talking to you about it right now, I'm getting goosebumps. It is um, – it just – like, I've never been one to, you know, like, be cutthroat or, like, you know, stab people in the back or treat people badly. I just uh, – I'm always uh, up in mentality of treating people well and treating people like I want to be treated. And everybody that I come across, I try to make a lasting impression on and take even a few seconds to look somebody in the eye and shake their hand. And, um, you know, just I'm just grateful to, to be in this position because I try to put myself in the same shoes as uh, another WWE fan who sees somebody that they look up to. And I, I, I would be really upset if the experience was a negative one. So um, I try not to have any negative experiences or interactions with anybody, and it's always been that way, and I try to be consistent with that um, over the past, you know, decade plus. And when people started <clears throat> embracing me and I started to actually feel that love around the elimination, time, elimination chamber time, um, it made me feel like I, that everything that I had done, I had been doing the right way, you know, uh, so it just kind of reinforced the way that I've approached this industry and the way that I've approached the business. Um, it just reinforced the fact that I feel like I'm doing it the way that I should be doing it. So, um, yeah, man, it just it feels really, really good to, to have so much love and so much support from so many different people. And like you said, at the WrestleMania moment, like going on to social media and seeing videos of people with their kids and everybody is like hugging and crying and just like so ecstatic and then seeing videos of grown men in bars hugging and crying and so, you know what I'm saying so it, it was um it was awesome and I and again it just makes me take so much pride in being a champion of the people and uh like I said like right now I'm just trying to be the best possible champion that I can be and give the people everything that they want you know just so that this run um, is what they wanted it to be. So um, that's that's kind of where we're at. That's where we're at. You know, uh, I, I had a good. Uh, I, I saw a good quote that said, "At the top of another mountain, at the top of a mountain is the base of another mountain." So as arduous and you know, um, trying as it's been to get to this point over 11 years, uh, this is just the beginning of the journey. You know, now it's a matter of becoming. Uh, a legendary champion, you know, having a reign that is memorable and um, and iconic, you know, not to steal anything from uh, from from Peyton and Billy, but uh, you know, it's uh, that's the goal now is to to make sure that this run is the run of all runs because, like I said, I don't know if it's ever going to happen again. You know, but uh, it's my it's it's my goal just to make sure that it is a significant and impactful run. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think you're well on your way. Uh, so, uh, uh, yeah, best of luck, man. It it really is inspiring. I was there with my kids. They got a ten year old and eight year old, and it was absolutely the the highlight of uh, our WrestleMania experience. So, and I, I may or may not have had something in my eye in the. Uh, <laughs> and you were there. Yeah. There you go. Not a dry eye in the building. That's what it's all about. Mission accomplished. <laughs> all right, Coffee. Thank you so much. I appreciate you taking the time, man. No worries, man. Thank you. 